All right, welcome to the CXM Experience, where experience is the new brand. We love experience so much, we have it in our title twice. Uh, I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler, and today I've got a special guest, uh, Katie Martell. Katie and I actually did a really cool segment uh, for Oracle about a month ago, and we had so much fun together, we thought we would put the show back on the road and try it again. So we'll see how this how this goes today. Uh, Katie, some people have talked about you as being an unapologetic marketing truth teller. So I will make that your title for today. And uh, just in case you want to get a hold of Katie or follow her, uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Katie, K-A-T-I-E, Martell, M-A-R-T-E-L-L. Uh, Katie, welcome to the CXM Experience. Thank you for having me. It's so great having you on the show. This is so much fun. <laughs> I love that I did your show and that you're doing my show. And then, you know, we'll have to do someone else's show together. That would be sort of like the trifecta. We'll tag team it. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. So uh, I've got like a million things to ask you. And, you know, I've got like a whole bunch of things on my mind. Um, I know you're working on some pretty interesting stuff right now around what's something you call woke washing. And, uh, and I wanted to just quickly introduce some of the some of the things that I'm seeing happening in sort of this era of um, civil unrest and um, awareness and how marketers stay relevant in a time of change. Um, I'll um, quickly, uh, you're probably aware of this. Um, we do the Forbes Top 50 Most Influential CMO Report every year. So the, that report is actually a partnership between uh, um, Forbes and a data scientist named Alexander Samuels, uh, Sprinkler, and then LinkedIn. And so LinkedIn's like about a third of the data elements, and we provide the other two, which is a brand presence and CMO presence. And uh, this year, uh, we typically release it at the end of June at Cannes. Uh, with Cannes being canceled this year and all the other kind of chaos going on, we decided to delay the report. And once we delayed it, we realized we had a bit more time to collect a bit more data. And so what we did is we uh, took the data collection period to the end of June, uh, analyzed it kind of over the balance of the summer, released it in September. And what we did is we actually used our normal elements uh, of you know presence and uh, brand presence and LinkedIn connections. But then we added an element around how CMOs responded to COVID-19 and how they responded to Black Lives Matter. And that actually had a change in the ratings and rankings. Uh, we saw some CMOs very engaged, very out there, some very recessive, very quiet about it, um, very different approaches. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong, or I don't, I don't know how to judge it, um, but we did sort of look at how people had engaged and looked at engagement as a positive thing. So that's kind of like sort of where my head is on this stuff right now. And um, we're seeing influential CMOs be voices for their companies. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, what do you think of that? And then, you know, give me sort of your uh, sort of premise on woke washing, and then let's just jam on that for a few minutes. Oh, I love it. I'd, I'd love to hear from you what the uh, parameters were as you're looking at how CMOs, was it individuals responding to the Black Lives Matter movement or was it their brands and the company at large? Both. So, mm -hmm. so we looked at like several billion data elements. It's a massive 
data-driven study. And one thing people are sometimes surprised when we take them through it is that the top 50 most influential CMOs is based on a data model, not based on us sitting in a room and deciding who's influential, right? It was actually the data would speak. And so it was how the brand responded and how the brand showed up and what it generated from an engagement standpoint, and then how the CMO individually did that as well. And there's like an operating theory in the top 50 influential CMO report that the the CEO uh, their self is an important part of the brand. And I actually, I'll get on my own hobby horse here for a second. So I am a big believer in this. Not everybody is, uh, but I, you know, I practice it. Because I have um, a strong point of view that uh, we're in this sort of new era of marketing where we have a very high level of understanding and detail about the people that we're talking to as marketers. So our customers are highly profiled. And we're in this sort of weird stage where that's relatively new, but it's it's a deep imbalance. And in the 20th century, we mostly had anonymous marketers talking to anonymous customers. Like my dad was a madman on... Madison Avenue, worked at YNR. He didn't know who he was talking to in his TV ads and they didn't know who was making them, right? So it was kind of like everyone didn't know anybody. Now we're in this stage where we kind of know a lot about them. This is the thing people call creep factor. And I think increasingly people are like, who's talking to me? Like, who's talking to me? Who's the person there? And actually just to support that in my customer experience center where we do community engagement, uh, I have all the community managers sign their posts. So, and actually other people do. Toyota does this too. Uh, and I think it's important for people to know who's behind a company uh, and what kind of company it is and who the people are. And if that's good for your kind of brand, the brand you want to identify with, great. And if not, great. And I think people increasingly want to know that. So that's a little bit of the th- operating theory behind it is the CMO's presence has an impact on the company itself. I agree. And I think that what you're, what you're, touching on is a as a larger shift where i think buyers and this is b2b and consumers they they want to look at brands uh as a bit more of a of a personal relationship in mm-hmm. in the way that they look to brands to align with them on shared values you know like any good marriage like i've been married for like 4 years and so i'm an expert now right because we're not gotten divorced Ooh, four yet 4 whole so years expert, wow that's uh, I'm telling you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm told right, is that good marriages, just like any good relationship, are founded on shared values. Do we see the world the same way? And are our core principles kind of aligned? And I think this is, you know, your dad at YNR probably never had to um, get into this, right? Where brands are being looked to as stewards in society of societal values, feminism, LGBTQ and pride, you know, the environment, Black Lives Matter. These are... Un, uh, you know, areas of, of the world that I think businesses have historically seen as as risk averse, things things to avoid, right? Because they're mired in controversy. Now it's part of the charter. It's actually part of the consideration set for buyers. Um, and so I totally agree. I think knowing who the, the people are behind this big faceless brand, right? Logos and, and everything else we engage with digitally that's becoming more important because we want to know, do we align? Do we see the world the same way? It's what we decide to either buy from or, or choose to boycott and even choose to, to cancel. So it goes in both directions. Yeah. Well, it's kind of tribe making, right? We're, we're always tribe making as humans. I mean, nothing a human likes more than a, than a clique, 
right? You know, it's like, yeah, we really, we really do love you'll be able to sort of like, this is my group and that, that other group. I don't like them very much. And, but I, I, I do think one of the reasons that businesses have avoided it is that you do have to make some pretty deliberate choices. Like mm-hmm. look at the most recent election. Um, there's a lot of people who have very different points of view from each other out there. And so if you decide I'm going to support this particular cause uh, and you do that really publicly, you're also acknowledging that you're potentially alienating in a very significant way, a bunch of other people who could be your customers. And I think a lot of, of businesses struggle with that. They want, they want everybody to like them. Right. Right. And I do think that when we talk about things like woke marketing, you know, which is just any marketing that touches on feminism and and all these other social movements, um, politics ends up being grouped in with that. And I actually think that they are very separate things. You know, I think when you, when you look at social movements, um, you know, we're living in a time of kind of the confluence of Black Lives Matter, pride marketing, the women's rights movement is still, you know, going full hug, still need it. It's it's kind of the strange, uh, I don't know, myths of civil rights. What we're talking about are really human and, and civil rights, not so much which candidate do you support and what's your stance on, I don't know, whatever candidate you chose. It's more about these kind of, I would say, basic kind of civil liberties, you know, and, and and it becomes far less controversial to me as a marketer when you look at it in that way, when you don't look mm. at it as supporting one candidate over the other, which I, I firmly believe is inappropriate. There was a um, software company that emailed, did you hear about this? All no. of their customers and their users. So about 10 million people got this email. Um, it was right before the election. And it basically said, you have to vote for candidate here. I'm not even going to tell yeah. you which candidate. Well, but right, isn't the reaction like, hold on, that's that's not right. Well, yeah. So it's this is highly nuanced, though. So if you if you don't mind, let's can we just wade into this a tiny bit? This is a this is super nuanced. So just for just for full disclosure, I'm originally a Canadian, so you can kind of guess what my politics are. <laughs> uh, and um, maple and syrup so, party. Got it. <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, so it would it would it would play well in Vermont. Uh, anyway, so the so but so politics aside, though, I am fascinated by the way um, certain issues can be talked about openly and not openly. For example, Hobby Lobby. Okay, so Hobby Lobby, what they've done is they've used this kind of really interesting combination of sort of dog whistles and sort of other sort of tools to signal what their beliefs are around whatever you want to call it, human rights, people, whatever. Right. And they've been able to communicate a very conservative stance, um, but they've done it without overtly saying so. And, uh, and I, I think they're, I don't think they're stupid. I think they know who they're talking to. Um, if you look at where Hobby Lobbies tend to be located and you look at the kind of person that goes to Hobby Lobby, I think they know exactly what they're doing. Um, but they have to do it very subtly. Whereas other businesses can just sort of proudly proclaim, you know, I'm for whatever rights. And I think that that's an interesting, for me, the interesting kind of conflict there. I think Chick-fil-A's kind of pulled this one off as well, which is the way of sort of sort of nudge, nudge, I'm on your side, but shh, let's not make a big deal about it. Uh, whereas other ones are like, you know, we're all for whatever. And I don't know, I don't know why that is. I'd love your point of view on it. Like I think that Chick-fil-A's closed on Sundays is just a 
more than a nudge perhaps, but it's a very clear signal from them about what they believe and what they think they're all about. Where it, But it does seem to not massively alienate everybody. So it's like they're trying to sort of pick their way through the forest in a way that they tightly identify with one group, but not completely turn off another group. And I think they've sort of gone over the line a couple of times and they're trying to keep it in the middle now. But uh, how do you feel about that? Because like, I think you said when you talk about woke washing, it can go both ways. It really can. And I, and I think this is where, you know, we're going to find ourselves and we have found ourselves in 2020. A lot of brands were caught off guard with these new expectations. I mean, a brand has to go right with where public opinion is going. If they're trying to reach the masses, they have to go where the energy and the groundswell is. So what's in the public narrative, what's being talked about, right? But they've also got to go to who controls the purse strings. Like at the end of the day, it's not in a business's self-interest to alienate uh, the the largest share of, of potential buyers, right? And so I do think that you know, you've got principled businesses. There's only a handful. And I'm, what I'm talking about are organizations like Patagonia, right, whose who's kind of core values, in this case around the environment and sustainability, um, are really woven deep into the, the practice of the business, how they um, source their materials, even the way that they their famous ad, don't buy this jacket, you know, the, the famous full page newspaper ad, um, advising that clients of theirs, customers, buy less because they want it to last longer, because this is what they believe. You've, you see a lot of brands like this who kind of have their core ethos on display. Um, you could argue a Hobby Lobby, you could argue a Chick-fil-A are similar, kind of top-down, you know, C-level driven values. Here's what the E-team believes, and so therefore the brand believes. Um, and it can get controversial. You know, it really, you really can get into trouble as a brand if you're trying to stand up to something that, um, you know, it doesn't reflect what the organization's about. It's down to the ethos of the the brand and what they're about, what they're for. I think where companies get in trouble is where they try to wade into areas that they don't belong. Yeah. Um, and you become known for something that is completely irrelevant to what the core business is, whether or not mm. it alienates others or what. It's just, it's not a good move. I've mm. got a background in PR and to me, it doesn't make strategic sense. I I wonder if it's, there is this, I think people buy on where you're going with this, which I agree with, by the way, is that people buy it based on values. I don't need, I don't know if the values need to have anything to do with the product per se. I think the Patagonia example is a great one. They are there, but I think they're more the exception. Let's just, let's use another example. By the way, do you like the fact that I didn't even know we we're going to talk about this? And I've got all these examples. <laughs> so and I, I love this topic. It's one of my favorite topics. So Volkswagen. Mm. Okay. This is a super complicated one. So Volkswagen kind of got famous with their famous lemonade and very irreverent advertising, got known as a brand that would uh, provide great value at low cost, you know, German engineering at an inexpensive price and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think Volkswagen created an, an ethos over many years and all sorts of amazing Bill Bernbach ads and stuff like that that just made it uh, an icon. Right, the the Beatles, a uh, permanent icon, not just of the 20th century, but probably for cars forever. Um, notwithstanding, and and what is amazing to me, I've always thought this was an amazing part of the Volkswagen brand, is that the uh, first car, the the Beetle, was actually sketched out um, by Hitler uh, for Ferdinand Porsche and 
asked PS Porsche to, to make it for him. Uh, and, so, and then somehow that turned into like the, the symbol of the counterculture movement in the sixties in America, which is like, I just find that, I don't know how to wrap my head around that, to be honest with you, but I just find it amazing, but somehow they pulled that off. Right. And then this whole diesel controversy happened a few years ago, you know, where they were basically caught deceiving people very deliberately. I mean, I don't know all the details beyond what I read in the business press, but certainly based on the filings or the court cases and, and a lot of things that have been admitted publicly, they were very deliberately playing with the results and being deceptive to the public about you know the, the pollution qualities of a diesel car, um, which I found amazing. But this is where you get a situation where the marketing and the actual behavior of the company are in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. I think there's risk here too, right? Because if you woke wash, as you put it, um, too much, uh, you've got to make sure you walk that talk. Because if you don't, then I think the backlash can be pretty significant. Not even just the backlash. I have a name, by the way, for this trend. Uh, it's 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 basically pandering, right? You're saying something so that you can get the favor of whoever you're trying to reach here. In this case, it was probably anyone interested in you know sustainability and, and all that. It's um it's pandemonium, right? It's just it's pandering. Pandemonium. For the That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the original name of the documentary. Shout out to my friend Kathy who you know tweeted at me one day. But um uh, it it's happening in every single corner of this kind of age of social movements. I, I love that example and thank you for bringing it up. It's perfect because I think everyone can relate to and understand this idea that the marketing says one thing, the company does another, um, but we can all see why it happened. Everyone can see through the motivation of that marketing. It was trying again to be part of this groundswell of sustainability, but you've got you've got pandering to Black Lives Matter. You've got pandering to the uh, the pandemic. You've got pandering to the environmental, you know, movement, pandering to LGBT. It is pervasive. This is actually what got me kind of interested in this topic in the first place was um, in 2016, I kept seeing all these ads and I was just like, I was probably stoned on my couch watching, you know, TV. This is not like scientific research here. I, I was just seeing. But you're also just newly married in 2016. So. It, this is actually before I got married. This is oh, how so uh, just before you got married. Okay, all right. <laughs> I got married, you got married for that four year. years. Okay, all right. So <laughs> just before you're about to get married, and, and instead of being super excited about, you're actually sitting there stoned on your couch. I get it. Okay, okay, I understand. Listen, okay, cool. wedding planning Paint is in the picture. So Paint in the picture. <laughs> you know, you just you need a vice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm seeing all these ads on TV that have um, feminism in it. I remember the ad I saw was actually a KPMG ad, you know, one of the big four mm-hmm. accounting firms. And it had um, Phil Mickelson and he's golfing with some uh, another professional, you know, female golfer. And he he lets her tee off. He's like, you go ahead. She tees off. The ball goes. And all of a sudden it cuts to a, a, a boardroom, right? And it has the glass shield, you know, ceiling breaking. It's now a, a, a court of law. The glass ceiling is breaking. A, a, some lab, some science lab, right? Metaphor being, man, women are breaking glass ceilings all over. And and KPMG is all about. Um, I think the end end line is like, we support women in golf and everywhere else. And it's like, woo, gay, you know. It, it's. I think it was promoting, by the way, sponsorship of some uh, women's golf tournament. But mm. I, I'm looking at this ad and I'm like, all right, this is like cheesy. AF. Uh, and I remember the next day, I don't know what got into me. I, I decided to Google KPMG and I decided to look into a little bit of their practice. Now, again, I am not an investigative journalist by any stretch, stoned on my couch. And I found uh, an article from, it was accounting today that, that showcased the KPMG 
was the subject of a $400 million class action lawsuit alleging a pattern of gender discrimination, including, by the way, denying promotions to women. Over a thousand women have spoken up um, and penalizing them for taking maternity leave. And I would have known that unless I Googled it because the ad was very feminist. This is what got me into it. And I, I mean, Grad, I could talk all day about brand A, brand B, brand C that do this, that spend tons of money, Super Bowl ads, right? To put this stuff out there, to showcase the world, these are our values. We, we stand for something more, right? Try to differentiate or entrust. Behind the scenes, don't live up to those values. It is rampant. Oh boy. Well, when they say that Katie Martell is an unapologetic marketing truth teller, they're not kidding around. I'm having so much fun. I love talking about these topics. They're tough topics sometimes, but they're really important for us to understand. And I am looking forward to finishing this conversation in our next part. But that's all for today. For the CXM Experience, I'm Grad Khan, CXO Sprinkler, and I will see you next time. Next time.